0: Today we're gonna fight a disease together. It's not COVID-19, at least not for the next 30 or 40 minutes. It's something different. It's something to which we are all extremely vulnerable, this disease, this ailment. This is an illness that often goes undetected and its side effects reach far in front of us. In fact, they reach into eternity. The disease that we're gonna talk about this morning is that of exhibitionism exhibitionism, that desire to be seen and to be validated for doing or saying something by the right people, the people that will applaud us for those very things. You may have heard of, in the last number of years, the term virtue signaling being thrown around. Virtue signaling is a type of exhibitionism, is what it is, in which an individual publicly expresses sentiments or opinions in order to demonstrate their own morality or their own righteousness to the world that's watching. It's been asked rhetorically, and no doubt you've heard it, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it fall, does it actually make a sound? Well, virtue signaling is really built atop a similar question. And that question is something like this, if a good person, quote unquote, isn't seen being good, are they really actually that good? And the assumed answer is probably not. No, not really. And so they must then curate a personal photo album of their righteousness to show to the world. See, look at all these exhibits I have of all the good things that I've done. So now you can know that I am indeed a good person. And people go about displaying these trinkets in several different ways. Maybe social media, maybe an awards acceptance speech, or a bumper sticker. Whatever the case may be, the important thing is that they are seen. That they're seen. And part of the irony of virtue signaling is that it doesn't actually matter if the virtue being signaled is moral. It doesn't actually matter if the signaler actually holds to the view that they're signaling to. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. What matters is that the world sees them displaying an approved position or viewpoint. It doesn't matter that I don't recycle and that I have three giant SUVs in the driveway so long as I retweet eco-friendly articles. That's what matters. Optics is what's important, right? Optics, what the world sees, that is what is crucial. This is an example of the disease of exhibitionism which we want to talk about this morning. This wanting to be seen and heard, doing and saying the right things by the right people. This sickness controls lives. It binds consciences, it distorts motives, and boy, oh boy, does it spread quickly. And it's always ugly, this disease of exhibitionism. It's always ugly, and I think it's at its worst when it gets its way into the church, when it comes into the church. See, Christians, as we know, are not immune from this sickness, not by a long stretch. We're all vulnerable to the desire of wanting to be seen doing churchy things by churchy people. We build that reputation, whether it's to impress them, to show them how godly we are, or to avoid disappointing them. They have expectations of us, so I want to keep going to avoid either way, we want to show off how godly we are. And one of the terrible symptoms of this illness when it gets its way into the church is that the desire to be seen godly actually becomes more important than being godly. That's the tragedy, that... The more time that's spent crafting the illusion of righteousness actually is more pursued than the pursuit of real righteousness. That we elevate what those around us think of us over and above what God in heaven thinks of us. That's the tragedy of exhibitionism when it comes in to the church. It's a terrible sickness and and this morning we want to fight it and to do that I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles if you have one, to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to come back to our series now as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew and today we find ourselves in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 and in this text this morning Jesus, who ultimately is the good doctor, isn't he? He's the good doctor and Jesus is going to help us in both diagnosis and treatment of this disease. So Matthew chapter 6 and as you make your way there, let's remember together where we are in this gospel because it's been at least a couple of months since we've come to this this book of the Bible. In these early days of Jesus's ministry, and that's what we find ourselves in now, these early days of his earthly ministry during his first advent, his first coming, it's the people of Israel that are in his focus. They're in his crosshairs. Matthew, as we go through the first number of chapters, he describes Jesus ministering in Jewish areas and calling Jewish disciples and proclaiming a Jewish kingdom. And in chapter 5, Jesus begins this famous Sermon on the Mount, a teaching directed at a Jewish audience. It says in chapter 5, verse 1, that he sits down and his disciples come to him and he begins to teach them. They are the primary target of this teaching. Now this teaching is set into a context in which the nation of Israel had largely misunderstood and and misinterpreted or misapplied the Mosaic law under which they had been living, which they had been given at Mount Sinai. They'd been misunderstanding it. And when Jesus sits down in Matthew chapter 5, he's really correcting them. He's saying, this is what you thought righteousness was. Boy, you missed it. It's actually here. And he's correcting how they understood this law to work out in their lives. And as we come to chapter 6 in our text this morning, as part of that national rebuke that Jesus is taking on at this moment, we find the Lord confronting the disease of religious exhibitionism. Religious exhibitionism, which is the disease we're looking at this morning. In fact, if you look at verse 1, you see that Jesus is crystal clear on the issue. He's crystal clear on what he's about to address. It's almost like a purpose statement. In fact, we'll label this first verse, the principle stated. So it really is that. He just states the principle. Here's what we're going to talk about. And later on, he expounds upon it. But look at verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Now, notice the assumption there that God's people practice righteousness. That's just baked right into the cake. He's assuming it. He's assuming that God's people pursue righteousness. And in fact, if we zoom out again and remember that this is part of a sermon, we're not parachuting into a unique uh, teaching here. This is part of something bigger. We remember that in chapter 5, he just laid out what righteousness looked like. He had just said, here's what righteousness looks like. You thought it was just avoid murder and avoid cheating on your spouse. But no, 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 no. Righteousness means avoiding anger and avoiding lust. It's so much more than you think. And then he goes on in chapter 5 to give other examples. He says, no, righteousness means pursuing marital fidelity and uncompromising honesty. It means long-suffering and sacrificial love. And Jesus here in chapter 6 is assuming that God's people will pursue lives that have characteristics like these, that are characterized by things like this. This is righteousness, right, he says. But in verse 1, our verse that we just read, it comes with that warning. It comes with the warning of, yes, I assume you're going to pursue righteousness, but as you do that, don't be a religious exhibitionist. So beware of doing that. Don't practice righteousness for human applause, or human approval, or or human acceptance. Don't do that. Pursue righteousness, yes, amen, a thousand times amen. Pursue righteousness, but not just be seen. Don't do it for that reason, he says. And why? Well, the motivation is also in this verse included as well. He says because God doesn't reward that. God doesn't reward that. While while we may impress or appease people around us, God is not so easily duped. He's, he's not dazzled or starstruck by even the most religious person in the world, the most zealous of us all. That doesn't impress God. See, Jesus comes with this corrective for the nation of Israel and through time and space empowered by the Holy Spirit to us as well. See, at Oak Ridge Bible Chapel and every Christian, you know, we should be pursuing righteousness. In fact, that is a prayer of mine for our church family, that we would be characterized by people that just run after godliness that we want to be more like God's Son, empowered by God's Spirit, submitting to God's Word. That's who we want to be, pursuing godliness. You know, but as a church family, as we pursue this God-given goal, it's good to once in a while pause and get a checkup. Is there any religious exhibitionism calcifying in my heart? Is there anything creeping in? Is there any way in which I'm pursuing godliness But part of me wants to be seen doing it. You know, part of me is practicing righteousness before men to be noticed, as Jesus says. Just a little bit, if I'm honest. And here Jesus says to us, if that's us, if we notice any of that in our lives, Jesus says, whoa, 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 be careful. There's no reward for that. There's no reward for that. So Jesus here, in chapter 6, verse 1, he made his point very, very clear. made his point very clear. It's stated right off the bat. But as we keep reading in this chapter, we also find that he wanted to make it applicable. He didn't want to just state it and then walk away. He wanted to state it and then elucidate it for them. And so starting in verse 2, Jesus pivots from the principle stated to the principle illustrated. And it's just that simple. He says, here's what I'm going to talk about. Now let me give you three examples of how that plays out. And what we're going to find him doing is taking three Acts of righteousness, good things, and showing how not to do them, and then how to do them. Three examples. So this is the principle illustrated after it was stated. The first one, as I said, is in verse 2, and it has to do with giving. Giving is a good thing, right? It's a good pursuit of right. It's something that we're assumed, as we'll see, we're assumed to do. But look at verse 2. This is how not to do it. Jesus says, So when you give to the poor, notice it's assumed, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men there's how not to give he says don't give in such a way that you ensure other people see you do it can you imagine that picture, trumpets in the streets here comes the best giver in the world look at him, look how generous he is Jesus is saying don't draw attention to your generosity for the sake of earthly reputation so other people will say wow, what a giver Look how generous, he must be so godly. Why? Well, finish verse two. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. That applause that they sought, that applause that they maybe heard and then inevitably heard fade, that's all they get, Jesus says. That's the reward right there. Jesus simply says, Just don't give that way. Don't give that way. You know, today we might say, don't publish your tax write-offs. Don't post acts of generosity online, you know, or announce your charity work or philanthropy or humanitarian efforts. Look how good I am. And we do it online or just for those likes. We want people to know. We we publish our Christian service resume, perhaps, in subtle ways. We, we slip it into conversation, perhaps. But we want people to know that we're growing in godliness. And Jesus here is saying, you know, all those likes that you got online, all those Approving nods from brothers and sisters in Christ, all the positive whispers behind the scenes about how much you're growing in the faith, all of that, congratulations. Enjoy it. That's your reward. That's what you get. God is not going to add to that. That's the reward you wanted. You got it. So he says, don't give that way. But he continues, he flips the coin and says, instead, give this way. Verse three. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving will be in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Instead of putting effort into publicity, put effort into secrecy. Instead of wanting to be seen doing these generous things, try to make an effort actually not to be seen. So much so that even you forget how much you've given and how you've served. That's what this idiom means of not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's, I'm generous and I don't keep track to the point that I can't even remember how generous I've been, how giving I've been. That's the goal here. That's, that's how God's people are freed to give. We don't keep track. We give with reckless abandon. Why? Because we know that none of it goes unnoticed. Even if no one else, no other brothers and sisters see me, the world doesn't see me, even if I forget. I don't even remember what I've given. It doesn't matter. Because God knows and he sees all, even if others don't. And the rewards are far greater. They are with the Father in heaven, verse 1. And they are eternal. Isn't that a great? Like Before we move on to the second illustration, I told you there's three illustrations coming for that stated principle in verse 1. I do want to offer a, a, a potential corrective here. We want to be careful not to swing the pendulum. Okay? That is always a danger. We veer away from one ditch and in our zeal we crash headlong into the next. I want to make sure that we don't swing away from religious exhibitionism, which we're being warned against, all the way over to a form of religious stage fright. Where we're scared if anyone sees us serving. The Lord says, my rewards will be gone. You know what if I'm giving at the church and I put my envelope in a plate? Remember we used to do that? Pass a plate? Man, I can't even remember that. That's an archaic thought. But we used to put the envelope in the plate face down so no one sees what I wrote there, right? But then what if I look up and I catch eyes with the offer, the uh, the usher? Well, my reward's gone. He saw me. I am found out. No, that's not what we're talking about. That's a religious stage fright. Of course we want people seeing us pursue godliness. We want to spur one another on to love and good deeds. We want to encourage one another. And we want the world to see us pursue godliness. Maybe to be convicted by it, challenged by it, whatever the case may be. So we don't want to go to the other extreme. What Jesus is dealing with here is the heart. He's dealing with the motives. Why are you doing it? It's not an allergy to be seen or noticed. It's, is that the intent? Am I serving so that I can be seen by people? Or so that my Heavenly Father sees me and Him alone? That's all I care about. Whether other people see me or not, whatever. That's just a corrective that I want to put in place, a disclaimer, if you will, right in here uh, before we move on to the second illustration. So we have that first illustration. The statement, we have the, the, it's stated in verse 1, and now it first illustrated with giving. Now we go on to illustration number 2, which is praying. And as with giving, he begins, Jesus begins with a statement of what not to do. Look at verse 5. When you pray, again assumed, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. In short, prayer is not to be a performance, to be watched and evaluated. That's not the prayer that the Lord seeks. Don't pray so that others will think, Wow, he's so godly. Or, wow, she must really follow the Lord. She's maturing like crazy. Don't pray like that, the Lord says. Instead, pray like this, verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It's the same as with giving. It's a motive issue. Am I praying so that others will see me and hear my prayers and know how godly I am? Or am I really seeking just a commune with the Father in heaven? In that case, I can go into my inner closet. I can go in secret knowing that he hears me and that is enough. Really, Jesus is putting his disciples and us to a choice. Do you want to be rewarded by God or do you want to be rewarded by people? You cannot have both. That's what he's saying. You have to choose. Do you want eternal rewards in heaven or do you want the temporary fickle nods of people? You have to choose whether that's giving, praying, whatever. Now he continues this illustration of prayer in verse 7. He says, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, For your father knows what you need before you ask him. This reminds me of a foolish student who believes that length of essay automatically means quality of paper, quality of content. They pad it, right? Maybe bigger font, a couple of fluff paragraphs, and automatically it's better. And Jesus is saying, no, cut out those paragraphs. I don't need that. I don't need that padded bibliography. Jesus says, the Lord God, your Father, knows what you need before you even ask it. So get to the chase. Cut right to the chase. Just ask him. He wants a worshipful, dependent spirit coming to him. That's what he wants. He doesn't need all this extra stuff. Jesus says, don't pray like that. Cut it out. He's waiting to hear a sincere dependence and worship, not a demonstration of piety and verbal endurance. Look how long I can go. Man, I can pray forever. Look how mature I am, God. God says, Jesus says, no, forget it. Keep it to yourself. Now, after explaining here appropriate and inappropriate ways to pray in this, this illustration, Jesus now then gives a template for prayer. And this is very well-known, oftentimes dubbed the Lord's Prayer, which could probably be better labeled the Disciples' Prayer because this is Jesus giving it to his disciples as a template with which they can pray. And you'll notice as we go through this very familiar text, it is right in opposition to what he said about prayer, about how not to pray. He said, don't be long-winded. As we read through this, you'll you'll know the brevity of this prayer. It's short. Don't pray so as to be noticed by people. Look at me praying, and all of a sudden we read this prayer, and we see it's all God-focused. It's all focused on him, and any time it actually focuses on me, the prayer is to highlight my dependence, my neediness, and my my absolute without. So you'll notice that the the template that he now gives his disciples is in opposition to what he was describing what not to do at the beginning of the illustration. Let's work through it. Verse 9. Pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Notice the reverent worship with which Jesus begins this prayer. We want God's attention. We don't want people's attention. Hallowed be your name. Everything about you may it be separate because it is separate. You are holy and other. Verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Note the future tense of this request. Remember in Matthew, Jesus, the king, has come on the scene as prophesied. He comes to Israel and he says, I'm offering you the kingdom. I'm your king. I'm here. Do you want it or do you not? Get prepared. Repent. And I will bring this kingdom in. And we'll later on in our study, we'll find that they reject it. And the kingdom is postponed. But here, Jesus is offering it to them and saying, pray this way, your kingdom come. And when it comes, your will, your perfect holy will, will be experienced here on earth. Now, I want to pray that. Lord, may your will be done on this earth. This is what they're called to pray. And notice how God-focused it is. Verse 11 continues, Give us this day our daily bread. Now he turns inward. Now we're looking at us. Look how needy we are. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Lord, give us physically and spiritually what we need today. This day, I've got needs right now. I need you to meet them. If you don't show up and meet these needs, I'm in trouble. I need you today because I am weaker than I even realize. I'm more vulnerable than I even realize. I'm more indebted than I even realize. I need your help. You'll notice there's no fluff in this prayer. There's no padded paragraphs or anything like that. It is brief, but it's pointed. There's no self-adoration. There's no exhibitionism. This is true piety without the pageantry. There's nothing, no pizzazz. It is just flat out laying ourselves bare before a holy and almighty God. Now this forgiveness that's mentioned in verse 12, says, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus circles back to that in verses 14 and 15 to expound upon what he meant there. He says in verse 14, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now these two verses have been misunderstood far too often. And they cause a lot of grief, a lot of trepidation of the soul and the heart for, for Christians. So I want to put that to bed now. I want to tell you what this does not mean and what this means. What we're not talking about here is loss of salvation. What we're not talking about is if I'm wrong then refuse to forgive that person, I'm out. I'm out. Justification gone. You know, I, I am going to hell because I would not forgive them for cutting me off. That's not what we're talking about here. Remember who Jesus is talking to. Remember who his audience is. It's his disciples. Those men who you would later say will sit on 12 thrones and rule over the 12 tribes of Israel, they're going to glory. So he's talking to his disciples. And so when he says this this bit about forgiveness, what forgiveness here is dealing with is how it affects fellowship, not salvation. How it affects fellowship and not our salvation. I mean, when we refuse to forgive others who wrong us, that affects our relationships. Doesn't it? Obviously. Not only with that person, that relationship will never be the same unless we pursue forgiveness but it also affects our relationship with our Heavenly Father, with whom we will be with forever. But our relationship on earth, our fellowship with him on earth, our experience of intimacy with that relationship on earth is compromised if we do not extend forgiveness horizontally. It affects the relationships. To walk unforgivingly is to walk in unrighteousness. Isn't that what this section is about? It's, It's walking and pursuing righteousness. And to walk in unrighteousness unrighteousness is not to walk in favor with God. It's just that simple. He's saying extend forgiveness for the sake of fellowship horizontally and vertically. Now that's an important excursus, obviously, because Jesus decided to take it, so we want to take it as well. But now we want to quickly come back to what we're talking about and remind ourselves of the context of this entire passage. Jesus here is calling out the disease of religious exhibitionism don't pray so as to be seen he says don't pray so as to be applauded and recognized by people don't make that your habit instead he says go in secret and talk to your heavenly father worshiping him and declaring your dependence upon him people might not see that but god does god sees it and god rewards it i love the promise and he will reward it he will it's a promise now that leads us to our third illustration. And that has to do with fasting. This is in verse 16. Illustration number three, fasting. Jesus continues, Whenever you fast, again assumed, do not put on a gloomy face, as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now fasting, especially for the Jewish nation was the temporary denial of the physical, so as to focus on the spiritual. You abstain from food so that when the hunger pangs arrive, you arise. You're, you're prompted to worship, or you're prompted to pray. The spiritual discipline it was a pursuit of righteousness for these people. But Jesus says that some people were making a show of it. They were pouting and making sure that they were uncapped and exaggerating lethargy oh i'm so tired just going on and on until people inevitably were like oh what's wrong with bill over there and so didn't you hear bill's fasting he's fasting and then the other person would say oh so godly look how he's denying himself he must love the lord so much they're making a show of this otherwise great religious practice this pursuit of righteousness and jesus says don't fast that way don't keep it to yourself. Don't fast that way. Instead, he says, fast this way, verse 17. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Same song, different verse, same thing. The point is whether giving or praying, or fasting, or any other righteous pursuit, if done for the sake of earthly reputation, that reputation is your recompense. That is your payback. That's what you get. That is the full reward. Whatever you garner from the people you wanted to impress, that's what you get, Jesus says. So be content with that. If that's what you want, you've got it. But if done to please God, not God's people, you will be rewarded by him who sees all. I knew a woman who had been a missionary in Africa all her life, I think it was 60 years or something like that, in Africa, but by the time I met her, she was in her late 90s, and almost entirely confined to a chair in her little apartment. And day after day, hour after hour, this woman would flip through our church directory, praying for every member, one by one. People, Some of them she hadn't met. And she'd do this day after day, with a zero fanfare as far as I could tell, very few visitors. That didn't bother her at all. She didn't care. She didn't care that no one knew that she did this day after day, hour after hour. She knew that God saw her praying. And God heard her. And that was enough for her. That's a picture of what Jesus is describing here. Someone that doesn't care horizontally what people think. They care what God thinks. And that drives them. And then, as a beautiful byproduct, when people see you like that, they're blessed. They see that, in your, your reputation, if you so desire that, will be of a truly godly person, someone who is truly pious and loving the Lord. And brothers and sisters, as Jesus says here, God, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. He will. He will reward you for your generosity, for your study, for your private worship. He will reward you for your attempts at evangelism, your good deeds. He will reward you for all of it, because he sees all. He sees the phone calls you make and the text messages you send to brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage them, to build them up in a time like this. He sees all of that. He sees the meals you prepare. He sees the diapers you change. He sees the, the morality you pursue, the honesty you exhibit, the love you give. He sees the forgiveness you extend, the loyalty you grip, and the grace you extend. He sees it all. Nothing escapes his attention. Religious exhibitionism is the opposite of all of that. And it's a brutal disease. It's a terrible disease. And Jesus calls it out here in Matthew chapter six. He says, be careful practicing righteousness for the purpose of being seen. Be careful of that. Nothing good can come from it. Instead, pursue godliness knowing that the only one that really matters sees all. Now, so far this morning, we've seen the principle stated and the principle illustrated by Christ. I want to bring it home to us here today and talk about the principle activated. What do we do? Like, how do we take this and put it into shoe leather, into our lives in the next seven days? How do we, as a people of God, root out any sort of religious longing to be seen, exhibitionism that's in there. How do we take steps toward that and as we do that, become more like Christ? How do we do that? How do we live like one is watching rather than the crowds? How do I cultivate a life that is obsessed and concerned with the one that is watching and not everyone else? Well, that reality that God is watching and sees all will strike all of us differently. Um, But I want to speak to three groups that I think encompass all of us. All of us will fall into one of these three groups. And the idea that we are to live like one is watching will probably hit home differently for these three groups. The first one is that if you're watching or listening to this and and you've never trusted Christ for eternal life, if you've never trusted Christ for eternal life, let me hear you tell you right now that God sees you and God loves you and God sent his son to die for you that if you trust him, you can spend eternity with him in paradise. This is a free gift given to you, but it must be unwrapped by faith. So if that's you listening or watching here today, I want you to hear this, that for you this week to live like one is watching means that you call out to to that God and say, God, I'm a sinner. I don't know all that that means. I just know I've fallen short of perfection. And that's what you demand. I'm a sinner. And I know that you've paid the price for sinners like me by sending your son who died on the cross. And that he rose again, and by trusting him, I can have eternal life. That's what you need to do today. That's how you need to live like one is watching. He's watching you. He loves you. He's listening for that prayer. So friend, I pray that you do that today. That's the first group I want to talk to today, is those who don't know Christ. To live like one is watching is to trust Christ for the first time. Now, second, you may be watching or listening to this, and and you're a Christian, but you haven't been living like a Christian. Now, if you're honest, it would terrify you if a brother or sister in Christ got into your life and started looking around. You know that you would be ashamed of what they found. You've strayed from Christ. And and the thought that God is watching and he sees all, you don't like that very much. In fact, right now, you might be trying to explain it away or justify it away or, or, or excuse it somehow. But I'll tell you what, I, I'm actually really thrilled that it bothers you. Because it should. To me that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in your life trying to soften your heart, bring you back to himself. For you, Christian, who has strayed from the path, for you this week to live like one is watching is simply to repent. is to call out to God for forgiveness. A forgiveness that we're told he is promised to extend to give back to you. Call out to him. Restore that fellowship that you once enjoyed with your Heavenly Father. Restore it. It's waiting for you. Call out to him. Live like one is watching. He sees all anyway. Call out to him. Ask for forgiveness. Repent. Come back to him. The one who saved you and the one who loves you. Come back to him. Now third, this third group, which is probably the majority of us watching or listening right now, I want to say this. What does it mean for us to live like one is watching? How do we activate this principle that Christ has laid before us to avoid religious exhibitionism? What does that look like for most of us? Well, I'm going to encourage you this week to select one person, one couple, or one family from our church. I want you to serve them. Find out a way to serve them somehow. It could just mean praying for them. I'm going to spend a little bit of time just praying for that person, that couple, that family. Or maybe you drop off a gift card or you shovel their driveway. I will leave it up to you and your creativity. But pick one person, one couple, one family and serve them. And serve them anonymously. Serve them anonymously. Try to serve them in such a way that they won't know who it was. Now, I say anonymously. From a human perspective, because we know that God sees all. He will see you serving them. I don't want to scare you. Remember that pendulum. If they open the door as you're about to put the gift card down, don't fret too badly, but strive for anonymity. Try to serve someone in the church without seeking credit. For some of us, it's going to be very easy. We'll enjoy this. You know, for others, it will be more of a stretch, but try to serve someone in the church under the guise of anonymity. And then when you're finished that, thank God thank God for the rewards that he's promised because he has promised to give them to you because he sees all. So as you strive to pursue service to your brother and sister Christ, thank the Lord that he has promised to reward you. So those are the three groups. If you're not a believer, God's watching, trust him. If you're a believer that's strayed, God's watching, repent. And if you're a believer who's longing to be more like Christ and grow in your relationship with him, then serve someone in anonymity and enjoy the results, enjoy the rewards that are sure to come. You know, we want to be a church family that is characterized by piety without pageantry. That's our heart's desire. We want to be a people pursuing God in such a way that it frees us to really live in grace. We want to do that, but without the pizzazz, without any of the, the accolades, we don't want to be obsessed with that. We don't want to be the people that Jesus is describing here in Matthew chapter 6. We want to be a people who run headlong after godliness, following the means that God himself has prescribed for us. But we want to do it for him. We don't want to do it for other people. We want to live like one is watching—the one, the important one—that God is watching. You know, will others see us do it? Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I hope my brothers and sisters in Christ see one another pursuing godliness. I hope that the world outside the church sees us and are confused and baffled and convicted by all that they see. I hope that they are. But when other people see us, we need to understand that that's merely a beautiful byproduct. It's a byproduct of a godly life, it's not the goal. It's not the goal, it's, the goal is worship. The goal is to please our savior. The rest is gravy, that other people will see us and be spurred on. You know, may God root out in us this week any signs of religious exhibitionism. May he free us from that disease. May he cure us of that disease and refocus each of us and, and all of us together on the only pair of watching eyes that ultimately matter, which are his. Let me close our service this morning by praying for those things. Bow with me wherever you are, please. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are a gracious God, not only gracious in extending sinners' salvation in your Son, and that is certainly gracious, but gracious in walking with us through this life in our pursuit of godliness. Gracious in providing us the means by which we can fellowship with you. Graciousness for keeping us saved, for forgiving our repeated sins as we try to grow and stumble toward Christ likeness. We thank you for the grace that you have lavished upon us. And Father, we do want to respond to that gracious gift. We want to respond by pursuing godliness, Christ likeness. We do. But if we're honest, there are times that our flesh still rears its ugly head tries to take credit, tries to convince us that the approval, the applause of people around us is important. We don't want to disappoint the people around us and that becomes, if we're honest, a motivating factor for our pursuit of godliness. Father, we ask by the power of your spirit you root that out in us as individuals and as a church family that you would free us to pursue godliness just for your sake because we know you are watching, because we know that you reward and for no other reason. Father, I pray for those who have heard this, maybe they stumbled upon this online a long time after it was first recorded, but they don't know you in the way that we're speaking of. They're far from you because they've never trusted Christ for salvation, for eternal life. Maybe they think they're a good person. Maybe they've been raised in a different religious bent, or maybe they've convinced themselves that nothing exists beyond what they can see and touch. Father, I pray you convict them and bring them to yourself. That this very day they would pass from darkness into light. That they would trust Christ, your son, for eternal life. And that they would rejoice. Father, I pray for those in our church family who are Christian. They have trusted your son. They have been redeemed. They have been born again. And yet, over the past few years, or even over the past few months, during this time of separation from the church family, they've strayed. Old habits have crept back in, sinful habits. They have started to become apathetic to their Christian growth. Whatever the case may be, Father, you know their heart. I pray that you convict them, that they feel a call back to yourself, that you're welcoming arms arms like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, waiting, scouring the horizon for them to return. Father, I pray that today they repent, they come back to you, and they enjoy the beauty of that restored fellowship. And for the rest of us, Father, I pray that you would reward us for a a godly pursuit of godliness. That we would want to be Christ-like for your sake, because of all you've done for us, because of what you promised us, not because of what other people will think. Free us from the burden of that disease, we pray. Father, this is your world, and we anticipate your kingdom. Father, we pray as the Lord Jesus taught the disciples to pray so many years ago. We pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name, not our name, your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, we ache for that day when that will be so. We ask that you give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power